So it's the summer of 1989. Think back. And um, I had just been through a breakup. A girl went off to college. I had to stay home in Houston for my senior year. And so in my anguish, my adolescent anguish, I, I did what I rarely do. I went and saw a film by myself. Now, some of you may do that all the time. Um, it's not that bad, but it was just uncharacteristic of me. I always wanted to go with friends. I didn't. Uh, I went by myself. Um, and by the time I walked out of that theater, out of that darkened theater, I was different. For whatever a 17-year-old can grasp after seeing a film like that, the, the film I saw that day, uh, which had just been released, was Dead Poet Society. Ah, yes. And a hush came over the crowd. I, I've spoken of it often. I've quoted it to you many times. And, and, and now I'm going to show you a clip from it because the whole thing is clippable. <laughs> but I do so um, uh, for this reason. This is early in the film when, when Professor Keating, played by Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, has uh, more or less introduced himself as a winsomely nonconformist English professor. And now he has led his his uh, fledgling class of young strapping men into the trophy hall of the, uh, of the prep school. And he has this exchange about a poem, but about something more than a poem. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That sees the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here. Bruise some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Table. 
you put a movie like that in front of a 17-year-old, it's like putting red meat in front of a tiger. You have all this, this thing that you can't even have a word for, this, this impulse to want to go out and, and seize the day, right? It's, it's what he says, it's, it's almost inarguable. There's this, uh, you know, there's the brevity of life, and, and therefore you, you feel this uh, desire to make your life extraordinary, as he says. And, and who can argue with that, right? That, that life is unpredictable, life is fleeting. And, and with that brevity, it invites, if not impels you to as he'll soon quote from Walt Whitman, suck the marrow out of life. And, and who of us in this room or anybody that ever hears that film would, would argue that who wouldn't want to be able to look back on your life and, and, be, and find a little bit of satisfaction because you felt like you made your life extraordinary. I mean, uh, go to any bookstore and, and you're going to see lines of rows of books that are all promising you that way to make your life extraordinary for the low, low price of $26.99. It's why we have phrases like bucket list. It's why we have little new abbreviations called YOLO. You only live once. And, and that, therefore, that, that thought, that premise is both potent and prevalent. And, and I might say, if we were honest with ourselves, we buy into it, maybe at some fundamental level. But here's the question. Given what we've been talking about for the last several weeks in Paul's most concentrated comments about resurrection... How does that fit with what we've been talking about? Does it fit? If, in fact, there is a life that does not end, even when your body might be fertilizing daffodils, how does that shape the way you think about your life well before you do? Because you know what Karl Marx would say. Your resurrection faith is just an opiate to induce you into this sort of very set, this sedated life in which you don't really have to think about anything and be entirely passive. So how does the resurrection fit with whatever we just heard there that makes probably inside we go, yeah, yeah, does it fit at all? I think we've got to talk about it. We're in the very last passage of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and I think you might say that the thesis of this last passage, and maybe the, the, the thesis of the whole chapter is this. Believing in what you will become in time is essential to becoming who you are now. Now that's a thick sentence, I know. We'll, we'll take some time to pack it. Let me say it again. Believing in what you will become in time, in the future, is essential to becoming who you are now. In the present. I think that's where he's going. And I think that's where I'm going in this sermon. Two things we're asking. What will we become in time? And then secondly, why is knowing and believing that essential to becoming who you are? Now there's your tricky phrase. Why is that essential to becoming who you are in the present? Let's listen to the last nine verses of 1 Corinthians 15. If you would, could I have you just stand one more time? Our central text for today is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. It's, uh, it's Paul's grand finale. If this were a fireworks show, this is Paul's grand finale. He pulls out all the stops. He's going he's gonna to leave everything out on the table and, uh, and remind us of what it is. And, and, and the first part of his question that he's out to answer for us is, what will we become? And I'm breaking that down into three things that I find here in these first several verses. What, when, and how. What will you become if the resurrection is true? Like nothing you can conceive of. You will be you, but not you. You know that, that funny paradox, I don't remember who coined it, the, the ship of Theseus, right? The, 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 the ancient Greek ship that if you continue to replace one of the boards uh, every time, because you, know, you go out on the sea and it, it breaks down a little bit and you put a new board on, and then after a while, you do that for 20 years and everything is the new board. It's like, is it still the ship of Theseus? Right? If, that, you know, if you saw WandaVision, you know what I'm talking about there, that little paradox. It's the question, who are we? What will we become? You will be you, but you will be not you. Sit with that for a minute. And you will be that because you don't have a choice. You will have to be that. What he says there in verse 15, verse 50 is, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You have to be transformed. You move into a new climate, so to speak. You have to adapt to that new climate. You can't just be as you are in order to inhabit that new place. That's pretty much what, what Paul was saying here. Given where things are headed, what God will do with the entirety of creation, a new heavens and a new earth, you will have to be something different in order to live there. So uh, here's another callback to the great divorce that C.S. Lewis writes. You know, he, he writes there, what does he say? The, the grass, um, Hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock. That what you and I feel is so real is, is nothing compared to what it will be. And that's as far as we can go. And that's as far as we can imagine. And we need people like C.S. Lewis to help us even conceive of the possibility that this world will be different. What is, is not what will be. And given what, not, what, what will be requires that you will be different. What is that change? What is that qualitative difference in that it is like nothing you've known before and that you will still be you and yet not you? It is more than merely being resuscitated, right? Resurrection does not mean you were merely resuscitated. It was not like Lazarus. Lazarus some, was resurrected, yeah, but Lazarus is going to die again. Paul's talking about a kind of life in which, yes, you will be animated to life again, but that 
but that life leaves behind the possibility of decay. That life leaves a lot behind. Can you imagine never being tempted to get really unnecessarily angry? Can you ever conceive of not being broken down by fear? Can you imagine of running and not growing weary? It'll be different. That'll be the change. And he tells it, uses words that are big words, perishable will put on imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality, and, and all that sounds wonderful and highfalutin, and it is, and it's beyond description, but if I just might boil it down to you in very simplest terms, what you will be is what Jesus is now. What you will be is what Jesus is now. At the resurrection, if, if you read closely in what he is like after he's resurrected, not only does everybody go like this, <laughs> right? But he is not a spirit. He's not a ghost. You, you can't see the vase of, of, of the vase of roses behind him as you look through him. He's not like that. He is substantial. There's something to him. He's not transparent. He is hungry. What's for dinner, right? He asks that. What's for dinner? And yet, he is, he is not constrained by where he is. You can see him. You can feel him. You can touch him. But he knows what you're thinking even when he's not in the room. He can walk down a road to Emmaus and then somehow, whatever it means, he ascended and to disappear. That's, that's him. He's a body, but he ain't like no body you and I know. What you will be is what Jesus is now. And I, I know that's, that sounds more like Tolkien than reality. I get it. L listen to what St. Augustine said about that just to see if, if, you know, get your head around it. People are amazed that God, who made all things from nothing, makes a heavenly body from human flesh. Is he who was able to make you when you didn't exist, not able to make over what you once were? Call back to last week about all the things that we might look in the way of analogy. What you will be is what Jesus is now. That's, that's hard, but that's what. Now, when's that going to happen? When I was a teenager, not long after I saw that film, I had the um, opportunity to go to um, the convention center in Houston and see a concert by Doc Severinsen. Raise your hand if you ever even know that name, Doc Severinsen. Yeah, Woody does for sure, right? Doc Severinsen, right. That's, that's a really old picture of Doc Severinsen. He used to play for Johnny Carson, right? And so I got to see him, and somehow I got tickets to the green room, so I got to meet Doc Severinsen, and I, I remember distinctly um, uh, telling him a bad joke and, and getting a look from Doc Severinsen as if I had just told him a bad joke. Um, but there he was, and of, of, of all the people that I had ever heard, I was in the band, and I heard trumpeters, like I would always think of Doc Severinsen, he's that guy, I mean, he was the heir apparent to Louis Armstrong, that, that guy, he could, he could hit high whatever it would be, Woody will tell you later. And then along comes Wynton Marsalis, right? Wynton Marsalis, um, astounding player, and, and, and you know, he can, he can play to the, to the top, he can high notes and all that stuff, and yet he can play down in the lower registers like, you know, Miles Davis with far less barbiturates. Um, Sorry, Winton is that guy. He is the one that you were just, you were astounded by that. And, 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 and when you listen to people like Louis Armstrong, you listen to people like Doc Severinsen, you listen to people like Mitten um, Marsalis, you realize why armies would use trumpets. You realize why armies would, would blow the trumpet to, to signal something, to, to point you in a direction and say, this is the time. Let's go. Trumpets pierce the air. Mm. Where's this going? In Isaiah 27, 
the prophet speaks of the day when a trumpet will sound and what that trumpet signified in that moment would be the end of Israel's exile. It's time to go home, family. They would blow a trumpet to signal that and say, let's go. In Zechariah chapter 9, in a moment where it, the, another trumpet is blown to show that God is at work and that God is out to exercise and exert his authority and his power. What do they do? They blow a trumpet. The trumpet signifies that. Paul says here in our passage about a trumpet, but not just any trumpet, the last one. The last trumpet. Everything culminates in that. And that when everything changes, that's at the moment when you do. You are changed if you're the one that are fertilizing daffodils at the moment or you're the one that's collecting them and putting them in a vase. That's when it goes down. Now, when specifically that is, on what date, I will not tell you. And anybody that does, I'll leave it at that. The most important question, though, is how? Like, how does that all work out? What happens to you at the last trumpet is all derivative of one thing. Death has died at last. There'll be an end to it. And so Paul quotes both Isaiah and Hosea, O death, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? He is, whether the, the prophets in that moment were speaking metaphorically or actually, Paul is not speaking metaphorically. Let us not mock God with metaphor. He's not just talking about an internal renewal of our spirits. Walking, fleshly, yet in somehow ways that you can't describe. That's what he's talking about. It's not a metaphor. And, and Paul quotes that text. Uh, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your victory? That's a taunt. You taunt someone when you have the high ground. You, you know, Monty Python, I taunt you a second time, right? I, 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 you, I have the high ground. You have no way to come at me. This is where it's headed. I will taunt you, death, because I can. Why? Why taunt? Because of what he says there in verse 56 and 57, and it goes really fast, and I promise I'll unpack it for you. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, sting Death, sin, law. Fast. What is that? The sting there in the original language deals with what you might either either refer to like a scorpion bite, scorpion sting, or the, the goads that you would you know try to get your herd to move on. You those little tiny rocks on the ends of the whips to kind of goad them along. That's what a, the word there is. It might be better, though, to think of it more in terms like a snake bite. And um, those of you herpetologists in the room know that uh, there are venomous snakes and there are non-venomous snakes. And here's your public service announcement for the day. You had no idea this was coming. You're welcome. Um, that's, there are two kinds of snakes. And, and venomous snakes, uh, you know, it's going to cause tissue damage. It will eventually cause internal bleeding if you don't rest, mess with it. And if you really don't mess with it, it could cause cardiac arrest. That's what a venomous snake can do. Non-venomous snakes, they will, you know, cause inflammation and pain and discomfort, but that's about it. And therefore, the difference between them two has everything to do with the venom within them. And one bite is lethal, and the other bite is just painful. Why, why bring that up? Because Paul is talking about how in the sting of death is one thing to make that sting venomous. And that sting is sin. Sin lives in the sting, and that makes death venomous. Because what is sin? Sin 
to all of us who succumb to it, and that's every one of you, and that's me first, we have all met with that thing that if left unaddressed leads to condemnation. And where there's condemnation, there's separation. And there's no communion. That's what sin is. So why does death become venomous, so to speak, with the sting of sin? When he says that the sting of the sin is law, it's law that tells us what sin is. You go right in the parkway, and you're going to see signs that say road closed or falling rock or turn on your lights inside the tunnel. And if you don't listen to those, those are the laws. If you don't mind them, stuff happens, stuff that you don't want to happen, stuff that will change you forever if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those signs, the signage is the law. And we've broken the law. And therefore, we find ourselves in the grips of the venom of sin and death becomes a venomous sting. Here's the point. I'm bringing all of that up. In Jesus, he gives us a gift. He has turned death into a dry bite. Uh, you can get hit by a venomous snake. If it's a dry bite, it didn't get punctured. Venom doesn't go in. So it's essentially like, oops, ah, but nothing really to worry about. Jesus has made death a dry bite. Because he died for sin. He took our condemnation. He takes the sting that comes from sin on account of the law out of the bite, and therefore your death is a dry bite. That's what he does. That's what will be for you. When the last trumpet sounds, because of what Jesus did for the sake of sin, and for the sake of the corruption within us, and for the sake of the devil that holds us in sway, you will be like him. That's what will happen. That's the gospel. So what? I, it's, you want to believe it, I'll hold on to it. But what are the implications for that? Here's where I want to get back to the original thesis. Remember what I said at the beginning? This passage is all about saying this. Believing what you will become in time, we just did that part, is essential to becoming who you are in the present. All right, pastor, which is it? Am I becoming something or am I something? Yes! Both. Booyah! You are something and you are becoming that. And, and to get there, I, I need to appeal to Professor Keating one last time. Because when Keating says to his boys there, and not for the first time, it won't be the last time, he says, Carpe diem, seize the day. Make your life extraordinary. What he's saying is, your life is all about this. You must become extraordinary. Because in just a little while, it's going to be daffodils for you. And we hear that, and again, there's a part of us that goes, yes, this world, this life is a gift, and yes, it is passing, and things do change, and my choices do matter, and I don't want to waste what I've got. Yes, all of that is true. I give my barbaric yop to affirm that. But what's extraordinary? I mean, does that mean talented? Does that mean influential? Does that mean powerful? Does that mean wealthy? Like, you can be all of those things and still be rotten to the core. 
And you can be none of those things. And still, there's something to you. So what's extraordinary? I'll give him a little credit. You didn't have time to define it. And, and, and what happens if, if you don't make it too extraordinary? I mean, I, I won't take a poll. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you think you're living an extraordinary life? And I'm not trying to set the bar low. I'm just saying, what happens if you don't get there? Look, you don't know that film. You know that there is one student who feels so constrained by his circumstances that he cannot find or reach that extraordinary life, and he makes a drastic conclusion that leads to a tragic decision. It matters what extraordinary is. It matters whether or not extraordinary is what we're all aspiring to or something else. So yeah, I love that film, but at some point I go, the resurrection maybe changes my calculation a little bit. Rather than think that becoming extraordinary is the most important thing, uh, 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 an aspiration which, I don't know how she put it, Professor Keating is saying this, you must become extraordinary and that's on you. Good luck. What if instead, rather than try to become extraordinary, whatever that might mean, and, and to think so, it's all on you, rather, what if you instead become who you are, and that is to be the beneficiary of an extraordinary gift? That's a different life. That's a different quality of life. That's a different set of aspirations of life. It's different. And you've got to know the difference. Otherwise, I will, I will default to Professor Keating's life all my days because I will think, I'm going to die soon. I better get it all in before I can. And then what is my life? It's all about trying to avoid regret. Well, that's a wonderful way to live. Really? And then it really is all about me. So what does it mean to become who you are? It all comes down to what he says in the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in this, knowing that it is the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Three things that are true of you, that is already true of you, and yet which you are to grow up into the fullness thereof, to become those things that you already are. What are those three things? Here we go. Here's the first. You are his. You are beloved. Don't rush by that. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you are beloved because of what he did. You are not merely tolerated. You are not merely ambiguously accepted. You're cherished. You are beloved. Paul doesn't throw words away like that. He doesn't use them token ways. You're beloved, and you have to sit with that. I'm going to show you a clip from Mr. Rogers that had me in tears by the end of it. You don't know that story. You know that there's a, a, an author for Vanity Fair that comes to do a really long write-up on Mr. Rogers. And here they are sitting in the Chinese restaurant. And this author, this, uh, this journalist, has had a really bad experience with his own father. And, and so now here's Mr. Rogers in his own inimical style um, trying to help him talk through that. Bill was right. You love people like me. What are people like you? 
never met anyone like you in my entire life. Broken people. I don't think you were broken. I know you are a man of conviction. A person who knows the difference between what is wrong and what is right. Try to remember that your relationship with your father also helped to shape those parts. He helped you become what you are. Would you do something with me, Lloyd? It's an exercise I like to do sometimes. We'll just take a minute and think about all the people who loved us into being. I, I can't do that. They will come to you. Just one minute of silence. Thank you for doing that with me. I feel so much better. I dare you to do the experiment sometime. It doesn't have to be in a Chinese restaurant. You have to know that you're beloved if you're in him. And you have to become persuaded of that. Otherwise, you will, you will just feel the rest of your life trying to pack everything into it to make sure it was all perfect. And it won't have been perfect. Rather than try to make your life extraordinary, you need to believe that you've been the beneficiary of an extraordinary gift. Become who you are by becoming immovable and steadfast in that. 
We said at the very beginning of the series in verse 2 where Paul says, it is the gospel of the resurrection in which we stand. And I used the illustration of a boat that if I tell you to walk on water, you can't do it. But if I push a boat out to you on the surf and you stand in it, you can. Your ability to stand depends on what you're standing in. But friends, if you've ever stood in a boat, you know that you can't just sort of stand any other way. It's not like standing on a sidewalk. You've got to shift your weight. You've got to keep your weight low. You've got to watch the current as it comes and kind of adjust your stance as you see that. That's what it means to stand in a boat, friends. That's what it means to stand in this world. You become who you are. I, whatever it will take for you to be reminded that you are beloved, what you read, how you wrestle in prayer, who you spend time with, that's what you have to do. That's how you become who you are. And that's essential. And it's essential to believe that you've been given a gift. That's the first thing. Look, the Lord is out to remind you that you're beloved, but his primary issue is not with your self-esteem. Because there's a second thing he wants you to become who you are, and that is that you are, who are you? You're ministers. You are ministers. Now, you may not feel like one, and there's plenty of days where I don't feel like one. But you're ministers. Why? Because he says, be steadfast, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Wherever goodness is needed, wherever mercy is sought, wherever justice is required, wherever kindness needs to be dispensed to overflowing, that's yours and my mandate. And we become that by participating in that work where the opportunity affords itself that we might do on earth as it is in heaven. This is ours. This is who we are, and we become who we are by participating in that work. And not that you would become extraordinary, but just that you and I would be present. Just present. Wherever you find yourself, can you be present? Can you be attentive? Can you be responsive? That's what it means to become who you are, because you're already ministers. Sorry, I didn't know if you signed up for that all right, but you did. And on the days where it's hard, you have to remember of the third thing that you are that you have to become. You are not only his and beloved, you are not only ministers, you are also an heir. He's given us sort of a posture of, of being immovable. He's told us about a mandate to, to be abounding in the work of the Lord, but now he's finally given us an assurance, and that assurance is this. Your labor is not in vain. Will there be days where you don't feel like it? Yes. Will there be days where it seems too costly? Yes. Will there be days where it seems like it's pointless and foolish? Yes. But if in the resurrection something has been set aside for you, namely an inheritance that is kept in heaven unfading and unblemished for you, and if he's already given us a down payment of that inheritance by giving us his spirit, who's there to remind us that you are his and beloved and that you're ministers on the day where you don't feel like it. Friends, that is your assurance. And it comes down to this. Here's where assurance goes. Whatever you can lose in this life is still nothing to what cannot be taken from you. Jesus said so, and the resurrection validates the hope. Becoming who you are is asking the Spirit to reassure you that your labor is not in vain. I'm serious. You should ask. I'm serious. You'll have to. And he won't grow weary of you asking. You become who you are because of the gift that he's given you. And then you die in hope. 
And I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis wrote a, wrote a lot of letters in his day. And he received a letter from a woman who was dying. And he wrote her back. And he said this. Can you not see death as a friend and a deliverer? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace. Relax. Let go. I will catch you. That's where resurrection makes a difference. That's why it matters. And though we might glean much from Professor Keating, we have a different story. And in that story, we cleave. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, uh, help us to believe this so that we might live in love and with hope, um, in particular in the days where it uh, seems very remote and absurd. Thank you that you give us to each other, that we are as much a means of grace by gathering in this place and with one another as often as we can uh, to commend to us that you are risen and that in your resurrection uh, there is a reason uh, to abound and to hope. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Peace be with you.